Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to uh, Revelation chapter 5, and uh, just hold it open there. I'll get to it in a moment. took a nap yesterday and woke up and decided to uh, change what I was planning to preach today. Now, I love naps. I think uh, cultures that uh, practice them are more humane than ours, and uh, actually, I always wake up from naps a better Christian, uh, really. I'm serious about that. Uh, I woke up yesterday, and... I had a lot on my mind. I kept thinking about things that were troubling me. I, I thought most of you probably have at best only a vague idea of exactly what it is we're trying to do uh, in chapel this year. And then I thought in my muddled state that uh, you probably don't know what our theme for the year is. Maybe you forgot it. God all in all in four big areas. In his honor, in his book, in his family, the church, and in his story, the story. That, that troubled me, too. I thought, gosh, do they, do they know why we're doing this? Do, do, have, I, have I said it enough? Have I communicated the fact that I want to preach to the Old Testament this year, but always tie it into the New, and then and somehow go to the New Testament next year, Lord willing, and tie it to the Old, and, and sort of leave a big impression on you that the, the story, the whole story is absolutely wonderful, and critical. And I thought, do you know why it is? And did you remember what Jesus said to those, those confused and uh, troubled disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of resurrection? How their confusion was directly attributable to the fact that they were ignorant of the story. Said, you are such foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. And then Luke says he quoted passages from the writings of Moses and all the prophets and explained all the scriptures had to say about himself. I was worried. Maybe you forgot that. But why did he say it? Well, he was saying, you don't understand what's happening to you because you don't understand what's happening, capital H, capital A, P, P, E, N, I, N, G, in the world, in history. Your own story is an enigma because God's story is an enigma too. So you'll need to stay with me this morning because to explain this again, I'm going to take you on a trip that will include stops in heaven, a classic football game, and the communion table. Let's start with heaven. Where is it? Well, it's uh, up there, right? Now, what we mean by up there is it's up above us. It transcends the reality that we are able to taste, touch, hear, smell, and see. It's, it's not accessible to our five senses. It's, it's up there. It's not geographically located, but it's up there. And if we could just have eyes to see, we would see so much around us right now. It's... It's, it's as near, in many ways, it's as near as our heartbeat, and yet it is as remote from our senses as Jupiter. But it's there. It's up there. And up there in heaven, right this moment, according to the book of Revelation, which we'll be looking at in just a moment, uh, worship is taking place, and a story is being recalled. It's being again and again. You know, another good question I've asked about heaven is not so much where is it, but when is it? Because 
According to the Bible, heaven is a reality that's up there, but it's also something that's coming to be, that the end of history will, will mark the making of a new heaven and a new earth, and heaven and earth will come together. There will be no hiddenness about heaven. But to be on earth is to be in heaven, and to be in heaven is to walk on a new earth. It's something that's coming to be. You know, this is expressed so well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, where Paul's talking about how hard it is to be a Christian, how hard it is to uh, do the work of the gospel. And he says, uh, he says, now, but we don't lose heart. Because our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight or eternal glory that outweighs them all. Now listen, he says, We fix our eyes, therefore, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. There you got it, heaven and earth. But then this, 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 uh, this temporal reality, this coming to be, he says, For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. So this is all going to pass away. But heaven is something that's coming to us. Now, who is in heaven? Oh my, God's in heaven. Bizarre and wonderful creatures are in heaven. Myriads and trillions of saints and angels are in heaven. And God's throne is in heaven. Which is to say, heaven is the control room of the universe. And what's happening in the control room? Well, that's where we come to the book of Revelation chapter 5. And what we're going to see this morning is that in the control room of the universe, the control room of the universe, the place where history is being directed, where world events are fitting in with the plan and purpose of God, in the control room of heaven, there's a lot of worship going on based on the remembrance of the great story that I so want you to know. Before we look at this text, remember this, how the Lord taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Now here's the kicker. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So a question before we go into this text. What's going on in heaven that we should pray and want Go on right here in Murchison Gym, Westmont College, Santa Barbara, California, planet Earth. Revelation chapter 5. John has been lifted up into the heavenly realms. He now sees things that we can't see. Listen to what he sees. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll and even look inside it. I wept, and I wept because there was no one who was found to be worthy to open the scroll and look inside. Then one of the elders spoke to me and said, Don't weep. The lion 
of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They each had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And with a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. So, Lord, that's the way it is in heaven. That's what we're to seek. That's what this story is all about. So enable me to speak faithfully from your word now so that the thoughts of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, four things stand out. Number one, the throne and the scroll in God's right hand. Now, what's that mean? Well, a king sits on the throne. It's the king of the universe. And the king's scroll is what the king plans to do. It's his, it's his decree. It's his program, so to speak. When a king would, uh, would open a scroll and read it, it would be to enact, to set in motion what the king plans to do. And this scroll belongs to the king. It, it is sealed with seven seals of wax. This guarantees ownership. It has his signet ring on it. Only he can open it. It's written on both sides. It's as full as it can possibly be. And for God to have this scroll opened is to enact. It is to set in motion what he will do in the history of the world. And only God can open it. Second thing, 
There's a question being asked here. It's the question of the ages. It's who's worthy to open this scroll, to break open its seals? Is there anyone on earth or under the earth or on the ocean or in heaven? Is there anyone here who has what it takes to open up the scroll? That is to set in motion God's plan and purpose. Now, the question itself is a critique of our culture, I think. The word that we translate worthy is a word that has to do with goodness. So the question is, who's good enough to set God's purposes in motion? Now, what do we think? Well, we think of things like technology, money, beauty, strength, education, connections, intelligence, political power. God doesn't think of any of these things. He thinks of one thing only, holiness, goodness, purity. Who has the purity, the goodness to set my plan in motion? He said this to the prophet Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the strong man boast of his strength and let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows me and understands me, for I am the Lord who practices kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. Let him delight in the things that I delight in. Are you with me? Because when this question is asked in heaven, we're thrown into a crisis. John says, I looked around, and the sense of the Greek here is, is wailing. It's, it's, it's great, anguished crying. He's saying, I looked around, and I wept, and I wept, because there was no one. No one on earth or in heaven. There's, there's no leader. There's no, there's no scholar. There's, there's no scientist. There is nobody who can open up this scroll. This is terrible. Have you thought about that? That our crisis in the world today is ultimately a crisis in worship. Who's worthy? Who is worthy to be worshipped? We live in a very confusing world. Archbishop William Temple said it's like a jewelry store that's been broken into by vandals. They haven't stolen anything. They've just switched the price tags to where cheap things are priced highly and wonderful things are priced cheaply. So that's what the question points to. Number three, God's solution is revealed. This is one of the most dramatic passages in all the Bible, I think. Then one of the elders spoke to John and said, Now don't cry because, look, over here, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed and he is able to break open that scroll. Of course, the lion, the, the symbol of regality and kingship and strength and power, he can do it. And all heaven stands on its tiptoes to watch the lion enter. And John says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. There is no distinction here now between the Lamb and God. The Lamb, what's the Lamb about? The Lamb's about 
sacrifice. The lamb is about weakness even and vulnerability and, and helplessness. And, and here we have it, the, the paradox and the mystery of Jesus Christ. He is the lion who is a lamb. But don't be fooled. He's a lamb who's a lion. But it's the lamb that gets all the attention here, as well the lamb should. Which brings up the fourth thing we see here. When this happens, the story, the story of the grand sacrifice is remembered. It's celebrated. What do we read? They sing a new song. And in this short song here, I won't sing it. I don't know the tune they sang it to, but someone I know has put a tune to it. Actually, I think Handel did in parts of the Messiah. But, but it's, it's, it's a song about what, what this lamb did. And it is a, in, in capsule form. It is the past, the present, and the future of the faith. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation past, present. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, present, future, and they will reign on earth. And when this happens, this song is sung, John says, I look and I saw, oh my, I saw I saw thousands and thousands and 10,000 times, 10,000 angels. And, And I heard their voice and they were singing. They weren't humming. They were singing in a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And if that's not enough, when the story is being sung by by these uh, these elders and, and these people around the throne and, and the angels are joining in and, and responding. If that's not enough, John says, then I heard, I heard every creature. I mean, every creature on earth, in heaven, and on the sea, and in the sea, I heard everything in all creation singing too. What might that sound like? And the whole creation sings. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures, these are strange-looking creatures, but they, they say, Amen, and all the elders fall down again and worship God. That's what's going on in heaven. At the heart of the universe, in the very control room of heaven, a story is being remembered over and over again, a never-ending story of the lion who is a lamb, the grand sacrifice for our sins. So why is this story so important? It's what, it's what runs the universe. It's what has set and determined the end of history. And Paul writes to the Romans and says, it is in this hope, this hope that you were saved. Hope isn't a substance. Hope is a person and his deeds, his story, what he's done. And without the story, our little stories make no sense.
I am. Uh, I'm glad to be back in California because I'm a huge uh, and suffering uh, USC football fan. Uh, and uh, I have watched on videotape now, oh, I don't know, I lost track at about 10, the, uh, the footage of the uh, great 1974 USC Notre Dame football game. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with sacred history, uh, uh, Notre Dame is evil. Uh, they're bad. I, I, I've never rooted for Notre Dame. Even when they played Miami one year, I still rooted for Miami, and I don't like Miami. But anyway, Notre Dame and the Trojans. 1974, it was Thanksgiving. This game was played. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and at halftime, the score was 27 to 14. Notre Dame over USC. I was so depressed. And by the way, the game wasn't that close. They had a 13-point lead, but it wasn't that close. They were just pushing the USC Trojans up and all over the field. They were just drubbing them. And I, I've never been this depressed at, at, at halftime. I almost didn't want to watch the rest of the game. It was just too painful to watch. And we took a break, and we came back to the TV and said, well, I'll watch the kickoff. And uh, Notre Dame kicked off to USC. Uh, Anthony Davis caught the ball two yards into the end zone. My first thought was, oh, man, it's off to a bad start again. He should, he should, he should just, you know, touch down, just touch his knee down and take the ball in the 20. No, he ran out of the end zone. Two tacklers converged on him. I can still see it. And I'm getting chills right now as I'm, as I'm talking about this. <laughs> he put a move on him. They fell to the ground. He broke a second tackle. And then he just outran the whole stinking Notre Dame football team, 102 yards for a touchdown. Notre Dame 27, USC 21. As he kicked off to Notre Dame. Three and out. Got the ball again. This time it was Pat Hayden, the J.K. McKay, the coach's son. USC 28. Notre Dame 27. This was the greatest half of football I've ever watched. The final score was USC 55, Notre Dame 27. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, that's Now, as I said, I've watched that game about, oh, ten times. Some of them say, now, and by the way, this is a trivial passion of mine. I shouldn't be as excited as I am right now talking about it because it doesn't really matter that much, but... Well, maybe it really does matter. I don't know. We'll talk about it some other time. But, but here, I've watched it about ten times. And, and some of you might be thinking, Ben, why, why do you watch it ten times? I mean, you know how the game's going to turn out. And I say that's precisely why I watch it ten times, because I do know how the game's going to turn out. It's fun to watch this game. It's fun to watch USC get behind and get pushed around because you know what's going to happen at the end. In a very limited and secular way, watching that game is a kind of worship service for me. Okay, again, they're, they're, they're trivial values, but I, I have certain things I believe in, I hold to, I think are good, and when I, when I, when I watch the story, when I, when I remember the story, you know, where I'm going with this now, the things I love and believe in are held up. Again, this is small. What did Jesus tell us to do on the last night he spent on earth before his crucifixion. He said, do this in remembrance of me. 
that word we translate remembrance is a very interesting word. It's anamnesis. It means, it means more than simply to recall something. It means to recall something. Anamnesis means when you remember it, you're not just uh, sort of going through the memory banks, but in the retelling and the recollection of the story, its power becomes present. So take this bread and eat it. Drink from this cup and remember what happened. And Jesus may sound like a minimalist at this point. Well, it's just the bread and it's just the cup. But no, we have a whole Bible to inform what that cup and that blood are all about, what we're supposed to remember. And to go to the communion table, to gather in a place of worship. I mean, why are we saying things like hallelujah and holy, holy and the Lord Almighty? I mean, what, what is that all about? It's empty. It's, it's just shallow. It's pure emotionalism if we don't know the story behind it. What prompts thousands upon thousands of angels to sing in a loud voice? That's why the story is so important. Well, what do we do with this at Westmont? Or how do we do on earth as it is in heaven. Let me throw out a few suggestions this morning as I close. We plunge into it. That is, we plunge into the story. Dive in. We learn it. We reflect on it. We meditate on it. We make it our own. And then if we're going to do like they do in heaven, we plunge into it with, well, with everything in heaven and earth. I mean, animals, birds, trees, forests, oceans. We plunge into it with all we have and are, with power. Things like authority, control, influence, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. We plunge into it with, well, with our imaginations. And if our worship can't be driven and fired by imagination, then we've, we've missed a great opportunity here because this takes a lot of imagination to do, to sit in this place and think about heaven. Think about things like who is worthy to open the scroll and to be told it's, it's one who gave up his life, submitted to be crucified, it takes a lot of imagination to buy into that and to sing with thousands of angels. I always think of Clarence Jordan when I think about this. Clarence Jordan was the founder of the first interracial community in the United States. He founded it down in America's Georgia, not too far from a peanut farmer named Jimmy Carter. And he got blacks and whites to live together, and they were going to be a, a, a sign of, of the lamb, of, of what God does to people. And and he was persecuted. They, they were shouted at. They were, they were, they were spit on. They were, they were finally, the, the compound was burned down. And here was Jordan with, with an empty field. And the reporters came out uh, to gloat mainly. And they said to Jordan, well, Clarence. So just how successful 
do you think this whole thing has been? Jordan thought, and he said, well, I guess it's been about as successful as the cross. It takes a lot of imagination to say that. It takes a lot of imagination to worship this lamb. But you've got to plunge in before you can do it. You've got to dive in with all of it. You know, you have to dive in with your bodies. I, I, you, know, you go through the book of Revelation, and these poor elders, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess they're old. I don't know. But I'm old. I mean, this would be hard on me to keep falling down. But they keep falling down and then getting up. <laughs> then they, they see something, and then they just fall down again, you know. That's heaven. I guess you can do that in heaven. But it, it is a physical kind of thing. Th these are loud voices. There is great exuberance in heaven. And it strikes me that if we're to worship God as he is worshipped in heaven, we're to plunge into this story with all that we are, our minds and our bodies. You know, I've got to give a bit of a personal witness here. I have a good friend who's a bishop in a Pentecostal group of churches in New York City and, and, and through the Caribbean. Uh, but the church he uh, is pastor over when he's not bishoping all the other churches is uh, the Bethel Gospel Tabernacle in New York City. And uh, Roderick Caesar III, he invited me to preach one Sunday. He went over to New York, and uh, it was his all-African-American church. And, uh, and I was so glad to be there. I mean, these, this is it's fun to preach in these places because they're into it. And uh, so we're singing, and I, you know, I'm thinking I can do what they're doing, you know. And so I was, you know, and... Uh, Everybody's grinning at me. They're all laughing, you know, kind of smiling, you know. I just, oh, this is such a friendly place, and you probably like what I'm doing, you know. And, uh, and old Roderick, good friend, only a good friend can do this. He leaned over and says, Ben, you know why they're smiling at you, don't you? And I said, no. He says, you can't dance. <laughs> but I kept on anyway. Well, because these folks were doing it, but... Well, I used to think that people who got their bodies involved were either shallow overly emotional, or maybe of the devil. Then I began to broaden out theologically and experientially, and I thought, well, okay, it, it's okay. It's okay to do that. I mean, I'm tolerant, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm big. I, can, I, I have room for people who do that. So much has happened to me in the last 10 years. You know where I'm at right now? You, 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 do, you worship the Lord as you are able, but I want you to know it's okay. It's just, it's just fine if you don't get your body involved. That's okay. We're all on a pilgrimage here. But when we pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I guess I'm just literal enough to think maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's a good thing. Maybe, maybe when I used to sing that song, you know, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and pray, maybe I should have lifted up my hands. Now, again, it's okay. You don't have to lift your hands up. Just do where you're at. God looks at the heart. We plunge in with passion. Well, I want to close with something that's going to be a challenge. Because I don't know if I can actually say this. Not because I'm worried about offending anybody. It's just, it's just, 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 it's just too big for me. If indeed heaven is a place with a story, the story is being told over and over again. 
and people keep falling down and standing up and singing in a loud voice. And, there's just, and the story keeps being told over and over again. I, and I, I, I sang this song to you guys a couple of weeks ago. I talked about Noah. Now, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He will never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. I mean, well, would, would that be boring? Really, would it? I mean, maybe for a month, but for eternity? I mean, just to, just to kind of hear the story again and, and keep singing about it and praising God for it. I mean, will it be boring? Well, I got to thinking about someone I love. And you have to excuse me. I just love my wife a lot, so I go back to Loretta. Am I tired yet of remembering our first, actually our second date? We stayed up all night. We talked. And we uh, played army in the shadows of this mountain Christian camp we were at. We acted silly. That was so much fun. I still remember it. Sweet. Remember the first time I held her hand? <laughs> oh, man. First time I kissed her. But then, there's certain things I just had to spend 30 years with her to, to love. I, I can't begin to tell you what it's meant to spend 30 years with her having children and working hard and and, and we've often thought, what if, we, what if we had bailed out on each other? What we would have missed? I mean, there's certain things that just the, the freshness and the newness of it was so sweet and unrepeatable. And there are other things that have to be old before they're good. Okay, now stay with me. I'm trying to do something here. It's really hard. Plus, I'm getting emotional as I think about it. But when John first saw Jesus on the island of Patmos in this book of Revelation, he said his hair and his head were white like wool. It was ancient. And his eyes were like fire. And his face shone like the sun in all its brilliance. He was very old and he was very young. Okay, I'm trying. Stay with me. Is it possible that all the newness, the freshness of the first discovery of this story, Ben Patterson, nine years old, in a good news club, opening his heart to Jesus, and all that's happened in the, in the nearly 50 years since, that, that that could always be present right there in eternity? And there could be nothing sweeter. I think heaven's more than this. Well, not more than. It includes other things. But, but would it not be worth an eternity of remembering in that sense? Well, if that doesn't work for you, I don't know if it works for me. But I'm stunned at how important this story is. And I do know this much. I have never regretted the hours I've spent pouring over the story. The Word of God is sweet 
And if it ever seems old and trite to hear a pastor say, it's worth all your time, if it's just something you sort of know now and you, you want to go on to something else, then you don't know it at all. Any more than I could say I know my wife. And it's time to move on to something else. It's inexhaustible, the story. So, all this came out of a nap. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your people. Lord, teach us to worship you. Teach us to remember the great story. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. May God bless you.